everyone. Welcome to Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm Rita Peters, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Meckler. Mark, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's a wild and woolly time for us, you and I, work-wise, because the legislatures are in session all over the country. And for those of you who don't know, that's what Rita and I do sort of in our, our real lives, right? Is right. we're parents and dog owners we were just talking about, but what we do for work is... Uh, we run the Convention of States project and the legislatures are in right now. So we're all over the country working and watching and it's wild every day. Things happen that we don't expect. And so it's crazy right now, but I like it this way. Yeah, I was just thinking, I wonder what will have happened when we're done recording this program. Like what will transpire in the 30 minutes it takes us to record Crossroads? It's always exciting. So for those of you joining us for the first time today, we've been doing a series of episodes on the topic of social justice. We're basing it off a great new book that I encourage you to pick up on Amazon. It's I'm sorry called- for laughing. I got to let you guys in on the joke. Is Right before we started recording, Rita and I were talking about having a bunch of dogs. And I have two Great Danes in the house, and they're difficult sometimes when we're trying to record and Rita has three dogs and three still or two now three in the three. house and yep. and she was saying how mostly they're okay but one of them does bark a bunch and so I assume that's your dog that barks all the time <laughs> actually Mark that was my Irish wolfhound dreaming <laughs> he's making weird noises as he is on the floor next to me dreaming so sorry about that everyone I think the dream is over now because <laughs> it's quiet again <laughs> Okay, so back to Crossroads. We've been going through this series on social justice from a great book that you can pick up on Amazon. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. And the author is Thaddeus J. Williams. I do encourage everyone listening, if you're interested in this topic, pick up the book. It's been a great um, resource. And we'll talk more toward the end about our thoughts overall on the book. Today, because this is the last episode in this series, we're going to go through what we think were the main takeaways from the book. But before we get into that, Mark, I want to talk a little bit about the appendices of this book because they are a great resource. It's like a third of the book is appendices, and they've got a lot of great information. I think the appendices alone are enough reason to buy the book, but the one I want to focus on for just a few minutes before we move into our conclusion of the series is Appendix C. It talks about capitalism and socialism, And I think that this is one of the biggest areas of confusion among Christians and particularly the younger generations because they tend to think that the the political left cares about the poor and the vulnerable, that that's what they're all about. And the political right, on the other hand, tends to be greedy. We just care about, you know, getting rich, preserving our own wealth, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Mark, do you agree that that misperception exists? Yeah, that misperception definitely exists. And that is widely sold to us by the left in not just in America, but around the world. 
that, uh, you know, socialism or even communism is about the regular person and about the worker. And I think it's fair to say that philosophically, that's what they profess. And that is what they talk about. And that's what those systems are, quote unquote, designed to do. But the reality is very different than that. Yeah. And it's really relevant here because that seems to be a common thread is that the claims being made by, you know, this aspect of the social justice movement, they, they aren't borne out upon closer examination. And this misperception of, you know, the political left being the side that cares more about the poor is, in fact, a false perception. Back in 2006, Arthur Brooks published a wonderful book. It's called Who Really Cares? The Surprising Truth About Compassionate Conservatism. And it actually proves with cold, hard survey data, all kinds of, you know, just factual information that in truth, on every measure, folks on the political right are actually more generous in giving to the poor, both in terms of money and in terms of time. And that is not the narrative we hear. So, Mark, do you have any insight for us on why is the other narrative the one that we all hear and are familiar with when it's not actually borne out by facts? I mean, I think part of it, for at least for me as a Christian and, and as I understand my faith, is born of our faith, which is we believe in in doing what's right and what's righteous. We believe in doing justice, as we've been talking about in this whole series. We're not big on talking about it. And, um, you know, there are even some denominations that say if you talk about it, then it takes away the, the value of the deed. In other words, so when you go out and do charity, and this is one of the things I really don't like about social media, Rita, as I see this all the time, where somebody, you know, they go feed a homeless person and they film themselves doing it and the question then becomes for me is, well, are you doing this because you want to get the likes and the clicks and the accolades for doing the deed? Or are you doing it because you genuinely cared about that homeless person? And I can't judge what somebody's motives are, but I do question if you're filming it, why are you yeah. really doing that? And so I think for conservatives and for Christians, we tend to do our charity in private. We, we yeah. tithe, we give money to causes we believe in. We help our friends and neighbors, but we're not out there telling everybody how wonderful we are because we do all that stuff. Because by the way, we're not, we're still sinners. We're still fallen. It's great that we do those deeds, but we're not better because we do more good works than somebody else. So it's just not in our culture as conservatives and Christians to go brag about all that stuff or say, that's what we're all about. Right. Now, in Appendix C of the book, Williams talks about some of the problems with socialism as a means of caring for the poor and vulnerable. So I just want to go through a couple of those points. The first one is that socialism takes the joy, charity, and humanity out of helping the poor. Mark, agree or disagree with that? Absolutely agree. What it is is just theft. To be honest with you, what, what we're doing is we're saying that the government at the point of a gun, and this is important to remember when I say at the point of a gun, I don't mean the government's coming to your house with a gun and taking your tax money from you. But by the way, they will ultimately if you don't pay your taxes, but you're going to go to jail. And so that means everything that the government does is done with the backing of potential force. 
And when you do that, it's like, you're going to take my money and you're going to give it to things, whether I consider those things just or righteous or good or not. Uh, and, and one great example is government money for abortions. No Christian believes in that. We're not supposed to do that as a country. There's actually something that prevents that. And we still do it. It's widely done in this country. And so why would I be joyful about my money going to pay for abortions when I believe that that's murder? So it absolutely takes the joy out of it. If it's not voluntary, it's not joyful. And this is one of the reasons I think this goes back to a previous point. Conservatives are very generous in giving our own money and time. And socialists and leftists are very generous in taking your money away from you and giving it to other people. Yeah. And, you know, I like that Williams points out that socialism takes the humanity out of helping the poor. And I think we can see that with our own, you know, government social welfare system in some ways today. You know, when, Mark, we are given opportunities to care for the poor in our own church, in our own community, um, we can connect with them on a personal level. We can get to know them. We can come to understand, you know, what is the problem that they're suffering from? We can offer them, you know, references to get a job or provide meals when they're sick. Um, we can do that on a human personal level as opposed to just, you know, we're writing our check for our taxes, sending it away and just expecting that all these problems are going to be taken care of. So I think it's a really good point. And I think it's rather tragic that, you know, the the shifting of caring for the poor to a government bureaucracy really has um, taken off the taken away from the hands on personal approach to taking care of people. Well, and on a real practical perspective, uh, this country was founded on a social welfare system based in the churches and in communities. And people were taken care of in community. The churches did literally 100% of the social welfare was not done by government. The framers and the founders were unfamiliar with government type of welfare and charity. And there were expectations tied to that too. In a small community, if somebody fell on hard times then the community would generally take care of them, usually through the church. And, but if the person chose chose not to work or not to get their act together or not to get back on their feet when help was offered, then generally the help stopped. And generally, quite often that person would be driven out of the community. So there was an appropriate amount of what I would describe as shame. In other words, it's shameful to not want to support yourself. It's not shameful to fall on hard times, but it is shameful to just rely on other people and not try to get yourself out of those hard times. And that was enforced socially in community and churches, we've lost that now. Now there is no incentive to get yourself back to work. And in fact, a lot of these government systems, Rita, incentivize people staying out of work. I can tell you for sure in California, a single mother who go gets an average entry level job is going to lose welfare benefits that make it harder for her to take care of her children. She's better off being on welfare. And from a human perspective, that's a really horrible thing to do to somebody. Yeah, it's tragic and it's degrading to the person when, you know, they're actually rewarded for not doing one of the things that people were created to do, which is to work. You know, we flourish as humans when we work and, you know, to to 
have that disincentivized um, is really tragic and degrading. Another important point here, Mark, is that um, socialism elevates the government to God status, according to Williams. Do you agree or disagree with that one? Oh, I absolutely do. And if you look at all hardcore socialist or slash communist states, and, and I want to say something about that as, as a system, socialism is just a stepping stone to communism. So there's really, we, we make this distinction, but it's really just on a continuum. If you're talking about socialism, ultimately you're talking about communism. And socialism and communism always destroy the family uh, and they always destroy the faith because the only way that they work, and even then they don't work, but the only way that they stay in power is if people place them on the highest pedestal. In other words, there cannot be anything above the state. We have to worship the state. Uh, the family has to be below the state. Certainly God has to be below the state. So this is inherent in the systems of socialism and communism. Yeah. Okay, so that's Appendix C. Again, I encourage everyone to make, if you've already bought the book, make sure you um, do use those appendices. They're great. But with that, Mark, let's get to the fun part and do a little summary of what we think were the most important takeaways from the book. And I'll go first. Okay. I, I don't know. We may have the same ones, <laughs> but I'll go first here. And this is really foundational. It is that God, as the creator of the universe and all mankind, defies, defines rather what justice is. So if we're talking to someone who doesn't believe that and has a different worldview, we're not only unlikely to agree on what justice is, but we're talking to someone who probably doesn't have a substantial basis for their own ideas about justice. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I do think that's the most important single point in the book, uh, that God is central to our worldview, but not to everybody's worldview. And so it is important to understand somebody's worldview if you're going to have a discussion with them about this stuff. And, you know, I I, I was going to say it, I was going to apologize, but there's no way to say this in a non-critical way. If you don't have God at the center of your worldview, then your worldview is unconnected to anything of substance. In other words, you, you are a believer in moral relativism if you're not a believer in God. Those are, that's a binary because yeah. the question is, well, where, where does your morality come from? And you say, well, it's just what I believe is right or what I believe is best, but that changes from time to time. That changes from person to person and society to society. The only constant where we can anchor our morality is in God. And so when you're talking social justice uh, versus God-based justice, you're talking about a morally relativistic form of justice. Yeah. And so when we talk to someone who has a totally different worldview that excludes God, it shouldn't be all, all that surprising to us that they can truly believe that what they are arguing for is justice, but they have a totally different worldview, so they're going to be way off, right? And um, we should just be aware of that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to persuade them 
or that we shouldn't lovingly and kindly point out the flaws in what they're saying or what they're arguing for. But it's helpful for us to be aware of that. Okay, Mark, give us one of your favorite takeaways. Yeah, I love the discussion of statistics and how statistics get manipulated and and how you have people on the social justice side of things, the, the social justice bee, as he calls it, who will say things like, well, you know, police kill unarmed black men all the time. But the reality is, if you look into the statistics, what you find is most of the things that they say are not statistically true. They're not factually correct. And again, this is a problem with moral relativism is you, you just choose fact patterns that or uh, a statistical analysis that suits your end. And what we should always look for is the truth. And the truth is nuanced. And it's not always easy. I don't want to say that that the facts always support us or the statistics always support us. Sometimes there's just a lot of nuance in there. Police shootings is one of these areas that it's just there's tons of nuance. It depends on the case. It depends on how you slice the facts. But don't let somebody just throw statistics around at you or just throw general statements like, you know, the police are inherently biased against black people. And that's just a broad, overbroad statement, and we should challenge it, and we should ask them for the statistics, and we should look at our own. A lot of those statistics on the sort of key cultural issues right now are contained in this book. Yeah, they're really helpful. I think that's a great takeaway, Mark, and it is similar to one of mine, which I would have phrased as jumping to conclusions of injustice without looking at the evidence. And I think that what makes this such a challenge today is just the culture, the way we get news. You know, you look at a social media post and just by its nature, it can't have all the information. You know, so we're reading a few sentences, a few sentences, maybe, you know, a number of characters, not even sentences. And we're, we quickly jump to a conclusion of this was unjust or this was not unjust without even having all of the facts in front of us. And <clears throat> I, I like how Williams points out that there are a lot of problems with this. First of all, you know, obviously, a lot of times we're just going to be wrong when we do that because we're making a conclusion without actually looking at the facts. But I think it's important that he points out one of the reason it's so harmful is that we're actually slandering people when we do that. You know, to to label someone as being racist or sexist or unjust when we haven't actually had the time or the information to really examine the situation and to really know that that's what's going on here, we're slandering our neighbor. And that's sin, you know. That's just that's just flat out wrong. Um, so I think that that is a a really important takeaway from this book. Yeah, and I want I want to give a very practical perspective on that. We live in a rage machine, right? And so what happens is you see something, your blood pressure goes up, it makes you angry. You see post on Facebook or Instagram or X or wherever. And you're like, man, that makes me angry. And then you type your little bit of anger in there as your comment, you know, I hate this person or this person's evil, this person's a bigot, whatever it is. And and this is not what I'm saying, not a criticism of left or right. This is a criticism of humans. 
and we're, we're all prone to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking for myself, I live in this bubble where I get asked to comment publicly on this stuff all the time. And people have an expectation that I will have an opinion on all these things. And I find myself very often, Rita, you know, reporters will reach out, well, what do you think about this? Do you, do you have an opinion on this? And in the moment, what they call that in the media is a hot take, right? Like, what's your immediate take on this? And generally, my immediate take is I don't have enough information to have an opinion. Yeah. And, and so what that means for me, there's a practical negative effect on me, which is I get less coverage in the media because mm-hmm. of that, because I won't do hot takes because mm-hmm. I don't really know. And I always assume because of the nature of media right now that whatever the first take is, is probably wrong. Whatever's out in the public immediately is you get one of these shootings, you get a police incident, you get an incident of racism, whatever it is, whatever's coming out in the news media in the heat of battle is probably wrong. And so I just sit back and like, I'm not going to comment on that until I get a day or two to dig into it and figure out what's going on. Usually for me, reading what that means is no coverage. Because two days in, nobody really cares what I think anymore. We're on to the next uh, meal in the rage machine or whatever that we're all feeding on. And I'm okay with that because I don't want to feed that machine. I'm happy to give my opinion on things that people ask for. If I can Um, give reasoned, rational, informed commentary, it still doesn't mean I'll be right. It just means at least I'll be reasoned and rational and not going on emotion and whatever the first hot take is. Um, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Mark. And I, I was just thinking as I was listening to you, imagine the kind of conversations we could have as a society if everyone were that disciplined, if everyone were willing to say, you know, I don't have all the facts yet, so I'm not going to comment. Then if we have the people who have the facts commenting and giving the actual facts instead of just stirring up rage, you know, it, it, it would be so much more helpful, but you know, from a faith perspective, this is really important. So what do, what do we want our words to do? We're told to be very cautious with our tongue, right? It can do incredible damage. And yet the system that we live in right now, because media is instantaneous, encourages exactly the opposite. Yeah. It encourages us to speak first and think later. It encourages us to react first to act out of emotion because what we're going for what most people are going for are views and clicks and fame and all that stuff and we we know as bible believing christians that all that stuff everything i just mentioned clicks and fame and power and viewership and popularity those are all tools of the devil those are yeah. all things that draw you towards bad stuff if that's what you really care about uh, and and I can say as somebody who lives in that world of clicks and fame and all that stuff, it's absolutely tempting. They want you to come on. You get a call from a major news program. Hey, will you come on and talk about this? And you know somebody else is going to if you don't. And I'll usually do a little bit of research like, hey, nobody really knows. And then they'll say, give me talking points. And my talking points are, well, nobody really knows yet. It could be this. And they're like, yeah, well, that's not very exciting, Mark. We would prefer that you throw a hand grenade into the room and blow (laughs) some people up. And that's what will get us views. Uh, And people will say that to me, not they prefer I throw a hand grenade, but you know, that's not really, that's not a perspective really. Yeah. I say, well, no, it is actually, that's the honest, truthful perspective, but it doesn't get ratings. But this applies to you in your own life. You don't have to be a person like me who's in the media 
just remember when you're going to go comment on X or Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you're either going to add fuel to the fire or you're going to behave in a way that's godly and reasoned. Sometimes, by the way, Rita, being godly and reasoned is adding fuel to the fire because you're like, I, I've looked at it. I understand the facts. It's real bad. And I'm going to call it out for what it is. That's righteous. That's mm -hmm. justice. But that generally doesn't happen immediately. Mm. So good, Mark. Uh, I hope everyone listening will take note of that because you're giving great advice to people like us who want to impact our culture um, for, you know, the sake of biblical truth and justice. This is one of the ways we can do that. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll give another one of my big takeaways from the book, and that is just how tribalism is such a trend in our society today, dividing the world into groups and focusing on group identity instead of focusing on our common humanity. And the truth is that Williams points to in the book, we are all created by God and we are all plagued by the human problem of sin. It is common to all of us. We all share in it. And that is the real problem in our society. It's not skin color. It's not gender. It's not, you know, socioeconomic status. The problem that we all share is sin. And we have a, a, an answer to that through Jesus. Um, so what did you think of his discussion of tribalism in the book, Mark? Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think I've been watching this develop over my lifetime. Uh, I've been in politics 15 years, and I've seen it get much, much worse in the last 15 years. <clears throat> I would argue that 15 years ago, that tribalism was primarily a leftist uh, trait. And I was saying at that time that if it continues on its current course, it will become a right-wing trait as well, because eventually people yeah. react, right? And so... Yeah. People like you and I, you know, I would say I sit in in the sweet spot or the deep spot of being a 60-year-old, so middle age to elderly white male. I've been attacked for my entire adult life for being in that position. And eventually, that's going to make me feel tribal. Yeah. And eventually, I'm going to fight back against that. For the longest period of time, people on the right really didn't behave in a very tribal way. Now I see it online. The right is, I wouldn't say just as, but getting to be as tribal as the left. And we need to be really careful about that. Somebody is not right just because they fit our quote unquote tribe. Just because a guy is a middle-aged white male doesn't make him right or good or bad or evil. It just, he's an image bearer. And the same is true on the left. And so we need to be really careful of this. And I would say probably most of our viewers consider themselves more on the right politically we need to be careful of falling into this tribalism that is being pushed on us by mainstream society and especially by the left. Yeah. And, you know, what you said is hitting upon another important takeaway I found from the book, and that is um, the, the push for us to generalize instead of ungeneralized. So the the push to identify all people of a certain race or certain gender as being oppressors or 
even if we don't go that far, just to to see all people of a certain race, a certain gender as, you know, they're this way, they're, you know, they're that way. And that is an unloving and uncaring thing to do. Mark, um, we are quickly running out of time. Surprise, surprise. But um, do you have, you want to give us maybe one more of your big takeaways? I actually just want to extend on the one you just did. Um, And I think this is really important, especially with regard to race. Uh, When So I'm 62. I think I mentioned that earlier. When I was growing up, when I was going to school, uh, for me, what Martin Luther King said in the I Have a Dream speech was a given. It wasn't something that was debated or discussed uh, beyond the fact that this is how we should all believe. And, And frankly, when I was growing up, it's just how we did all believe. Right. I didn't know anybody who didn't believe that in my household. If you had said, hey, we should debate the Martin Luther King speech and whether this is legitimate or reasonable, people would have looked at you cross eyed. What do you mean by that? That you should judge a person by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. Right? This is just fundamental to the United States of America as a society. Thank God for Dr. King and the civil rights movement that that was kind of the final push of this on our society as an extension of the civil war really and the 14th and 15th amendments. So we get to that point and now we're at a point where we have people in our society saying, no, you should judge people by the color of their skin and not the content of their character. And we're actually teaching kids this. We are teaching kids something that is entirely evil. I said this earlier, this is the product of the devil, literally. Yes. I mean, dividing people by the color of their skin, by their tribes is something that the devil does to keep us fighting. This is pure and simple sin, and we need to resist that. I, you know, it's, it's been said now that if you say that you're colorblind, that that's racism. And I will say here, by the way, I don't know, I don't know if our viewers know, but you and I got picked on by Right Wing Watch a couple of weeks ago. And we're just apparently terrible racists because we said that we're opposed to racism, right? And we said, right. And we said that whether you're you're anti-black or anti-Hispanic or anti-white, or that's just bad and it's racism, and that most of the racism in America is coming from the left. So I want to repeat that. And for Right Wing Watch, Rita and I are really proud of you guys naming us, and we hope you get this again because I'm going to say it again: racism of all forms is bad. The left would say that. Uh, only white people can be racist. I would say that the largest group of self-identifying racist people in the United States of America by polling, self-identifying, this is not me saying it, are black people in America today hmm. because they've been taught for a long time to hate white people. And this is terrible, whether it's blacks hating whites, whites hating blacks, whites hating Hispanics, whatever it is, this kind of tribalism and skin-based or ideology-based or whatever it is, hatred it's just wrong. It's terrible. Yeah. It's sinful. And we should push back against that hard in every possible way. We shouldn't buy into this tribalism. Social justice requires tribalism. And so social justice in the social justice B sense that is talked about in this book is bad. And the only kind of justice that's good is God-based justice. Amen. Yeah. And I'll just piggyback on that and reiterate that racism is real. It is a problem in America today. I would say a growing problem. And racism is wrong. It is evil. 
it does demand a response. All Christians should oppose all forms of racism, but we have to find what is really racism and not be so quick to jump to conclusions of it because someone says this is racist, that is racist. We need to look at the real evidence, root out the real instances of racism in our society and resist them and oppose them as Christians. Yeah. And I want to simplify that because I think this is important. What is racism? We've talked about what is social justice. Racism is categorizing and judging somebody by the color of their skin. Yes. doesn't matter what the color of their skin is. If I say black people are, or Asians are, or, you know, and you generalize broadly like that. I I made a generalization earlier based on statistical evidence self-reported in the black community that they are the most racist, especially against white people. That's them saying that about themselves. That's not me saying that. And so this is really important that we just don't generalize like that. We as Christians are taught to love every single human being as, as the author said, as an image bearer of God. Doesn't matter what color they are. Doesn't matter what gender they are. It doesn't even matter really what their ideology is. We're to love them. We love the sinner and we hate the sin, uh, whatever that sin might be. And we hate it on ourselves equally to hating it in other people. Absolutely. Mark, that's going to be a wrap. Um, The book we've been studying and discussing is Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. And the author is Thaddeus Williams. Mark, thanks for going along this journey with me. (laughs) It's been fun. I've enjoyed it. I want to end by thanking our generous sponsors at Blue Ridge Chimney Services, Blessings Christian Bookstore, Sunshine Ministries with Christian Radio, Wishing Well Florist and Travel Services, and our friends at New Beginnings Church and Garber's Church of the Brethren in Harrisonburg. Thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to make a donation to help keep Crossroads on the air, you can send a check to Crossroads at P.O. Box 881, Harrisonburg, Virginia 22803. I'm Rita Peters with Mark Meckler inviting you to join us again next week for another edition of Crossroads where faith and culture meet. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com. 